The Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mystery of life. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, joining you from the lands of the Lekwungen speaking peoples, the Songhees, and the Esquimalt First Nations, recently known as Victoria, BC, Canada. This conversation today is a really lovely one. I spoke with Mara Glatzel, author of a new book coming out February 28th. It's called Needy, How to Advocate for Your Needs and Claim Your Sovereignty. And it was recently selected by Malcolm Gladwell and Adam Grant for the next Big Idea Club's Book of the Month. So huge honor, bodes very well. I mean, I think that's a clue that it's gonna be a culture-changing book. So Mara says she is an intuitive coach, a writer, and needy podcast host, that's the name of her podcast, (laughs) who helps humans stop abandoning themselves and start reclaiming their sovereignty through embracing their needs and honoring their natural energy rhythms. She's also a queer femme mother of two and a recovering control freak. So I hope you'll find... uh, this conversation is just relatable, even if you don't identify as a recovering control freak, but you are just one of those people who is doing a lot of caretaking and a lot of tracking of other people. I think you'll really enjoy this book. Even I, as a recovering avoidant person who's had to really um, work for several years on not not having kind of like automatic frustration or irritation (laughs) that I'm having to tend another person. I, and like I've gotten, I've earned secure attachment. I actually like caretaking my beloveds now. Um, always like caretaking, uh, clients and, um, pretty good with strangers, but harder for some reason when, um, I need, I had needs too, but I didn't know I had them. I didn't know what they were. So even I felt that this book was really, really helpful. So we've spoken before. I was on Mara's podcast last year, so it felt comfortable for me to ask her this time some more personal questions, like how she manages these themes in her business. I just, I just always love hearing how fellow entrepreneurs are doing it, you know? Like, what are they grappling with right now? So we talk about being multi-passionate when so much prevailing marketing tells you how to niche down, how so much business coaching is about kind of like making yourself the smallest, most digestible bite-sized version of yourself. Um, and we also talk about balancing the need to feel safe in an overculture that is just factually unsafe in so many ways. And so how do you orient towards safeness? Um, that's, that's like a, a reframe that I learned from Linda Tai, um, that there isn't really any safety, but there is safeness. So anyway, you get the gist. This is just a factually unsafe overculture, capitalist, imperialist, white supremacist, patriarchy. And so it's especially unsafe for more oppressed people. And we just talk about, so how do you land safety? in this reality. We also get into how we might approach reclaiming needs like rest, depending on where we're at in that healing journey or things like saying no, depending on where we're at. So I hope you find this conversation both relatable and fun. I know you'll find it useful. So Mara, what identities do you lead with? I love this question and 
I spend a lot of time thinking about what identities I lead with um, because I'm a queer woman, a queer femme woman, and it often feels like that should be at the front of my life. And it's really not. I came out when I was 14. It feels, I don't know. So right now, if I think about what identity I am leading with, um, mother feels most apt. Uh, I also identify as a fat woman who moves through the world and has through childhood to now, which of course, you know, has its markers on me and my understanding of myself within the, the field of things. And yeah, lastly, queer. Um, yeah. That's great. I think that's, that's where I am. That's where <laughs> I'm at today. It's funny to think, yeah, there's this identity that's been with me for a long time. It's just but it's sometimes it's like spins around so long you don't even think of it the water in which you swim well and i think it's interesting too noticing that i i am in relationship with many people for whom that is a uh front identity mm. and that you know for me and perhaps that has to do with growing up in a family with a queer parent or and growing up in a community with many queer people that um it hasn't always felt that way but mm. sometimes you came out when you were 14. Can I ask how old are you now? Uh, yeah, I am 37 now, about to be okay. 38. Right, so more than half your life. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay, and it was so a shocker, which I think is always interesting about that being a part of- To you or to other people? To me. Okay. <laughs> was it, I think was to it other... a shock to anyone else? <laughs> no, but it was a real shock to me. I was like, I thought I was straight through and through and then all of a sudden, surprise. I mean, you'd think, if you have a lot of queer people around you, you would know, but I didn't. Oh, that's so cute. Like I'm thinking of like little 14 year old Mara being like, wait, wait, what? <laughs> so sweet. I'm so glad you had that environment though, that was like welcoming and could receive you in that identity. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was hard to come out anyway because of my own perfectionism, but mm. I have to say the, the reception was warm from everyone else. Aww. But, um, yeah. Oh, that's heartwarming. Okay. Intuitive coach. That's also an identity you lead with. In fact, it's the first identity you put on the back of your book, needy, how to advocate for your needs and claim your sovereignty. So can you explain it's I, the reason I'm asking is because I used to identify as intuitive coach or professional intuitive. So I just want to know, what do you mean by that? So for me, this is really about bringing to the front of my conversation a, a felt sense, an intuitive knowing, a way of seeing connections between things that feels innate to me. And I have a whole host of qualifications. You know, I, I have come to this work through many avenues, but something that I am really just bringing to the middle of my work now is a knowing about things and a belief that that's enough and that that's valuable. And I think I come to this work from very, as I said, a lot of perfectionism, um, very kind of like straight academic upbringing and this feeling of what is evidence-based, what is tried and true, what is, you know, the kind of theoretical underpinning of things is what matters. And everything else is sort of soft science. 
And it's not that I don't think that there's a place for all of those things because I, I absolutely do. But, you know, even as I was writing this book, I, the, on the first pass through, wrote a lot of people into it. And on the second and third pass through, took almost everybody out of it, except mm. for myself, which felt, and frankly, now that the book is almost here, feels much more vulnerable to put yourself out there without all of these, you know, perfectly cobbled together supporting arguments. <laughs> and... I see the way that I'm I'm learning how to be visible in the world in that way too, learning to stand on my own two feet and say, yeah, you know, I've I've learned a lot of things and I continue to learn a lot of things. And also some of my work is just how I see them. And mm -hmm. the the connections that I've seen and um, my fascination with how humans work since I was a little kid and in some ways, it's the the um, decision to put a professional hat on a coping mechanism of learning how to read the room. Mm -hmm. And I really try not to read the room in that way anymore now and have boundaries in my relationships with the people in my life. But I intentionally use that in my work and when I'm leading groups and when I'm in community with others in a professional sense. So that way of putting boundaries around that learned skill has felt really good. Mm-hmm. So you are a coach who is intuitive. You're not like, I'm a professional psychic who also coaches. You're like, yeah. I'm a coach who is intuitive. Um, I really appreciate you saying you, you still read the room, but only when it's professionally called for. And the rest of the time, you're like, that's theirs. This is mine. And I also want to say, good for you. Uh, gold star for letting yourself be seen. It is sort of funny how, you know, you write a book and there's stuff in it that's intensely personal, but it makes sense to you in the narrative arc of the story when it's just you writing alone, but then it comes out in the world and somebody might make a comment like, oh, wow, that was really personal. And you're like, oh, God damn it. Yes, it was. <laughs> it's like you forget other people are going to read it, right? How's that landing for you with your first readers? Yeah, I'm in that place right now. My first readers are loving the book. That feels really good. Um, but so many people in my life are commenting to me on a daily basis of, oh, I pre-ordered your book. I pre-ordered your book. And I'm like, that is so great. Thank you so much. Pre-orders are really important. But when that book comes, just like bury it in the backyard <laughs> or bring it to the swap shop or give it to somebody who doesn't live here. I mean, I, I live in a really small town where I also grew up mm. and yeah, there's a lot of things in the book that are intensely personal and that what's so interesting, I think, also is that I have, I don't know, I'm known in a certain way here and I am becoming more fully expressed and more integrated in all of my identities more and more so every day. But for a long time I did, I was my, my most fully expressed self in my work and on the internet and some people who were local to me followed that, but only if they wanted to opt in. And now the more visible I become, the, the more that people are interacting with my work in all kinds of ways every single day. And I just try to tell myself that it's good medicine, frankly, like this is me. So why don't I want people to know me as I am? 
And I know the answer to that is that I want to be liked by literally everyone on the planet. And that is not a reasonable expectation, right? That's not a reasonable benchmark. But you know, if I go back to my child self, it's, you know, that that desire to just be keep myself safe by being as um, kind of pedestrian and palatable as possible. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm not that. So in many ways, this book is a coming out party because a lot of people are going to read this and have never heard me say a single thing that is within its cover mm-hmm. um, ever before. And that's going to be good for me, even as it's uncomfortable. That's amazing. Good for you for doing that. I, I am laughing at, yeah, that idea of like people who knew you way back when, but don't, don't know you now. It's like, oh, people from high school are getting my book. What? (laughs) You know, like, that's so wonderful. That's so great. And also, I don't know if you know, but I've, we've had 35 years in which I've become this whole other person, but similarly, yeah, like there are people who know uh, me, I'm speaking for myself, there are people who know me in like certain roles in our community where I'm way more aggressive, I'm way more argumentative, I'm way more like strident. And so then they're like, I would love to know this attachment, Carmen. <laughs> they're just like, I'd love to know that person. It's like, keep up people, there are multitudes here. I can't yeah. <laughs> put them all on the internet. I have, I have all these different aspects of me. So in your book, I really love the way you you talk about how um, society conditions us to be as easily digestible as possible. And so we're already talking about it a little bit, but I want to go a little more behind the scenes of what this looks like for you as an entrepreneur, because, you know, we're out here in the world, we contain multitudes, but the business world, particularly if those of us who've been around since, you know, B-School started in 2010 or whatever, yes. you know, it's like you got a niche, you know, you've got to um, become an expert or an authority in this particular area. And if, you know, the confused mind says no, and so they have to know exactly what you're about. Um, but like, you know, we all we have needs to generate income, but also not just become a content machine. We have a need to... Um, have integrity and have true self-expression that's really broad and multi-passionate and really messy while at the same time we got to sell a book like who is this book for and so how are you managing the multitudes when it comes to being an entrepreneur who really is like hey I have this book and here's who it's for yeah so I was in b-school in 2010 (laughs) 2011 uh-huh. right here um uh-huh. I have and any thoughts it's yeah not a thing I recommend I just want to go on the record on my podcast <laughs> yeah and um you know it's so interesting because the way that I used to operate in my business was very similar to how I was relating to myself which was I am a hot mess to be managed as strictly as possible and so you know, the, the reign of terror was real. And it was like, I was this mess that I was just kind of pushing along all of the time. And if I look out from that, that's how I related to my body. That's how I related to um, any kind, that's what, how I understood motivation, mm-hmm. right? Um, you beat yourself up enough 
And so then you do the thing. Mm -hmm. And that would begin at the first of every year and, you know, kind of move out from there. And I think we're all familiar with that toxic productivity model and that way of motivation. And the comparison model of, I used to be a mess just like you, but not anymore. Here's what I did. And so we have to like position ourselves as not that mess and everyone should be comparing themselves to me. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I will say, frankly, that I would be making a lot more money if I was willing to do a lot of the things that I was taught. Mm-hmm. And I'm not willing to do those things, namely to make other people feel badly about themselves in order to have them say yes to whatever it is that I'm offering. But even beyond that, to put a quick and easy face on whatever it is that I'm teaching, because, you know, <laughs> I was like saying, my work is a hard sell. There is just the fact of the matter because I'm like, you're not a problem. There's no quick fix. There's only just being in relationship with yourself from now until the end of time. And there are tools, but they take a while to learn and they're best done in community and relationship, which is really all just slow technology. And so that's it. That's the best of what I've got. And a lot of my clients have worked with me for a a period of time and Old Mara used to think like, oh, well, if I haven't fixed you in one season, then, you know, I must be really crappy at my job. But the truth is that a lot of this work takes a long time to unlearn everything that we're carrying and to learn new skills, to feel brave enough to start using them. There's a repetition to that. You know, there's a repetition to this book. It is intentionally hypnotic in that way that we need to hear things over and over and over again. And so my work is a hard sell. I sell it anyway with a lot of enthusiasm. Um, And I think that it rings true because it is true. Because we've all been in that place of spending a lot of time and money and energy on things that, you know, we come by it honestly in our exhaustion. We are seduced into wanting whatever seems most easily accessible, whatever is the shortest route from here to there. Of course, we want that. I want that. Mm -hmm. Just to be clear, I also want that very much. Mm -hmm. And because I said yes to that and I spent a lot of time, money and energy on those things, I know that it never once got me to where I I needed to be, where I wanted to be. Mm -hmm. So that's the kind of practical piece of how do I sell? I try to be as honest as possible. I try not to create conditions of false scarcity or hurry people, or, you know, I give them a lot of information. I make myself very available to talk about things before to make sure they're a good fit. Um, and I try to be really honest about what it's not instead of like, I can be everything for you. Can I be everything for you? Right? Because that's that old piece of like, I can be for every single person on the planet. Look Mm -hmm. at me. Mm -hmm. But I think the other piece that's really important to mention is how I work and organize myself now in a human way, because I have to have a lot of boundaries with my business. Um, You know, I started my business and it ran for five years before I had kids. And then once I had kids, I 
was quite surprised to realize not just how much they would need me. I knew they would need me a lot, but also how I was changed, how my brain was changed by the process of, you know, the additional um, amount of caring I was doing every single day. And so I set up my business in a way that I have longer programs that um, create more of a base financial income that I can depend on no matter what. And I used to not be able to run something more than once because I get bored. And I trained myself to not get bored and instead to run things repeatedly so that I can deepen into the work and also rely on things that I've created in the past and um, build a, a body of work in that way. So it helps to have that in place and to know that I'm going to be at least able to pay my mortgage, pay my base bills. Uh, every month with that one offering and trying to kind of have as few things on my calendar as possible. I mean, right now my calendar is a hot mess, but generally speaking, have as few things on my calendar as possible because I'm constantly needing to rearrange things. You know, my kids are homesick for a week. Last week, we all had conjunctivitis. That was oh my God. Um, you know, things, things happen. And so, um, the more that I'm able to work in a steady way, and I have a small crew of, of amazing humans who help me now, and we're, they're teaching me how to work on things way in advance, because that's the other thing too, is I used to just like love the pressure mm -hmm. and love to like sit down so much coffee and power through. And, you know, I, <laughs> I had a carpal tunnel and wasn't good for my any part of my body. So, you know, working on things far in advance and trying to be more methodical when possible. And that accounts for their humanity too. You know, I, uh, people who, who work for me are parents by and large. It's like their lives get, we're coming through this pandemic. And I mean, you know, Anything and everything can and will happen. And so the more space that we allow ourselves and the better that we communicate about how we're actually doing, the more we're together as a team to get things done. And usually they're late, later than my perfectionism would like, less perfect than my perfectionism would like, right? There's a lot of managing myself and my expectations. Um, but I wanted to lay out those two pieces because I think this work has so much to do with how we operate in every realm of our lives, which is why it's so important. Because what I allow in myself, I'm also allowing in other people, even if I'm pissed about it, or even if I'm stressed about it, you know, it's like, oh, great, you know, we're supposed to have that really important thing done. And it's going to be two weeks late for totally valid reason. I want to have a uh, stable enough Kind of system, nervous system, um, blood sugar, to be able to just see things as they are, which is we're all doing the best that we can and assume positive intent and figure out how to move forward in a way that works best for everybody. Totally. Oh my gosh. Yeah. We work very similarly and um, yeah, slow technology, great term in our house. We call it low tech, right? Like what's the low tech response and, or, or in my business, it's minimum viable product. <laughs> what's like the least I can do that actually still has a ton of value because 
over the course of more than a decade, I had this body of work. And so that it, it really does take a long time, I think, to get to the place where you're like, okay, I have to trust in the stability that I've been nurturing for all this time. I also love that you started by saying I'd be making a lot more money. Um, yes, a hundred percent true. <laughs> and yet I would have to be working at that intensity again of that, like that pursuit of something, that elusive goal of like, yes, at some point, um, I'm going to somehow feel okay with this cycle of, you know, like having to ramp up launch. It's like, no, no, no. I want nothing to do with that. The other thing, this is sort of tangential, but this is kind of more for listeners. If we said B-School and you perked up because you're like, I know what they're talking about. I, I personally have a really big problem um, with people who charge what I would consider a tremendous amount for their programs. I, and I don't know if this is just internalized my my lower class status or what it is but like but also oh my god it's the internet we've had it for decades now knowledge wisdom is is not that expensive but the way in which that is also that um status the pursuit of status shows up there is is it's kind of culty right because people charge a whole bunch and then if you were the person who was like yes i want that i need that it's gonna make me more successful, it's going to change me, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be better. Now you've gone and done this really audacious thing, where you spent a shit ton of money that maybe you could or couldn't afford shit ton of money is relative, right. And now you would have to face the part of you that made you do that. <laughs> if you were to admit, oh, that maybe wasn't the best idea. And that's what cults do, right? They make you do something that's like so audacious that you would be embarrassed to say, ooh, this is actually a cult or like this actually didn't work out for me or I did that because I was vulnerable and they pushed all my pain points and I'm like embarrassed and ashamed to say that. But that's how they keep you in it and keep you doing it and keeping you in that, well, now I'm in it. I've, I've put the money and I'm invested. So it's just me that's standing in my own way instead of being like, oh, wait, that was just pure unadulterated capitalism, just absolutely exploiting my vulnerabilities. And um, it's not, it's no personal failing to have been vulnerable and have somebody exploit your pain points, right? Like we all go through that. But I, I want to like lift that up for anybody listening who's like, oh, I'm looking at this very premium offering and it's going to teach me all these things. Guess what? It probably really fucking isn't. You could probably learn it from an internet article or like a very simple, very moderately priced program. But capitalism is really, really good at uh, leveraging our own internalized oppression. They don't have to do, once you've done the audacious thing, they don't have to keep pressing your pain points because you will do it for them. <laughs> You'll be like, if I was just better, I would do all the homework from this program or my, you know, my launch would have been more successful and you just keep doing it to yourself. That's the like kind of diabolical truth about, about capitalism and entrepreneurship, I think. So everything that you are teaching people, this slow technology in your book inoculates us from being in the position where we are vulnerable to somebody exploiting our vulnerabilities and, 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 and uh, pain points. So I just love it. I love also the repetition. I love that you call it hypnotic. 
the structure is so grounding. You're going to get to the end of this chapter. There's going to be nice stories. And then it's going to be like, here's some suggestions. And then you, you end with, and this is what that might look like. And you describe different stages of someone's journey. And so I would love to hear you use an example um, of this, like, so you give advice. Let's say it's, here's some advice on how to say no. And depending on where you are in these different stages of your healing journey around this, that could look like this. Can you give people a sense of these five stages and what it might look like to say no, depending on what stage you're in? Yeah. So first, as it relates to the framework, when I was writing this book, they really wanted this book to be about how to advocate for your needs with other people. And while I do understand that, and that's extremely important, this is a book about advocating for your needs in your relationship with yourself. And before you even get to the advocating part, you know, identifying and honoring those needs in your relationship with yourself, because so often we skip past ourselves to the point of having to have the uncomfortable conversation, but we haven't done any of the internal work to really know what we're asking for to begin with or what's even possible to ask for. So I set up a framework in which um, self-responsibility creates the environment for responsive self-care, which builds self-trust and with time blooms into self-appreciation and self-love. In the self-care industry, too often we're told that we should act out of a feeling of love for ourselves or a feeling of, you know, wanting the best for ourselves when frankly, many of us are disconnected from ourselves. And so I talk about in the beginning of the book, like, I I don't need you to like yourself to take, I mean, I want you to like yourself, certainly, but I want you to take responsibility for yourself, however you feel about yourself, because that is going to change on any given day. Some days you're going to feel better about yourself. Some days you're going to feel less good. And all of those days you're going to have needs and those needs are going to need care. So if we're thinking about how to say no, right? The the ultimate, you know, there's no real uh, kiddie pool for this. It's like, you're going to have to just say no. I mean, but, you know, I think if you're at that self-responsibility stage, it looks like really sitting with and honoring the times when you said yes, even though you wanted to say no. Mm-hmm. And even if you didn't recognize it till after the fact, because so often we don't recognize it until mm-hmm. after the fact. And we may be apt to beat ourselves up at that moment, but that provides such powerful data for us in moving forward. If we can start to notice, hey, these are the situations in which I tend to say yes when I want to say no. Then when I'm faced with such a situation in the future, I'm going to know, hey, I'm talking to a man. He is in a power position. (laughs) This is me. Um, (laughs) These are the conditions where I am primed to say yes first and then regret it later. Oh my gosh, slow down. Cause of course I'm like putting myself in that situation being like, oh, if I feel resentment and I was talking with a man and he asked me to do something and I said, yes, I probably wanted to say no. Or for me personally, it's like, if I'm talking to a woman that I hugely respect, 
And now I'm feeling a ton of pressure and not enoughness. It's probably because I said yes and I should have said no. And I'm feeling like, oh my God, I'm in a hole. I have to get myself out of it. I'm like somatically experiencing, oh my gosh, this is how I would even know that I wish I'd said no. Yeah. And that is such, you know, the work begins way before you say no. Yeah. And it starts with, you know, these are the times. And resentment's great. You know, I think resentment is just a neon sign towards, <laughs> hey, there's this, something was needed here. A boundary was needed here. Help was needed here. And I didn't give it to myself. And whenever I'm feeling that way, and usually for me, it is that feeling of powerlessness. Like I wasn't allowed to say no, even if I wanted to say no. You know, that my social conditioning just primed me to bypass all of my needs and get to the yes mm -hmm. and make myself into whatever it was that was needed to make good on that yes. And I did that for so many years. And I think what's so important to notice is whatever yeses we, we offer come at the cost of saying yes to something we might really want. So when we have a calendar that's filled with a bunch of shit we don't want to do, and we say, I don't have time to do anything for myself or anything that I love or anything that's fun for me. This is where it happens, right? Mm -hmm. We first have to know, what am I saying yes to that I want to say no to? Mm -hmm. So then if we're in the self-care stage, it might look like giving ourselves space to respond when somebody asks us for something. Um, having a little script. I remember reading a book where Wally Lamb said that he had a little postcard next to the phone that was like, say no, <laughs> like you miserable motherfucker, something like that. It was just like, say like, whatever it is, say no. And I, I kind of use that myself um, at this point in my life. It's like, I want to start with no, because my life is really beautifully full of a lot of things at this moment. And unless it's a really great offer, I'm aware that it comes from, you know, time like giggling and playing school bus with my children or, I don't know, doing whatever I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. um, and so having that, giving that space and time, not making a decision on the spot, you know, this started for me, I used to, when I would be in the city, I was so overwhelmed by people who would ask me for money for causes that I believed in on street corners. Yeah. And I was so vulnerable to that because it was a cause I believed in, but I felt totally pressured and I felt like an asshole if I said no. And it was even something I, you know, and so I just developed a script for myself, which was, I don't make financial decisions on street corners. And that was, you know, I, it would just be like, do you have some literature that I can take with me to make this decision in the comfort of my bedroom or when I have a cup of coffee, you know, in a low stakes environment? Because similar to that B-School thing, when you have to make a decision in the moment and on the fly, you are at your most vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Who knows when you last ate? Who knows if you're hydrated? Who knows, you know, what the power differential is between you and that person? I've made a lot of financial decisions that I would not like to make again because I felt like I had to in totally. that moment. Yeah. So giving yourself that space, like, let me check my calendar and I'll get back to you. It doesn't have yeah. to be fancy. 
Mm-hmm. But just something to say, or, you know, for me now, often I say, let me talk to my partner, because if I say yes to you, then they're going to have to pick up the slack with my kids. And that's a team decision. Mm. So, so good. Okay. So we had self-responsibility, self-care. Yeah. And then we're in, we're at the self-trust stage. This looks like knowing that you can say no, even if somebody else doesn't like it which is another way of saying you can trust other people to tolerate their own disappointment, Mm. feel their own feelings. And this is really hard for me. And be mad at you. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, I will live. They're going to be mad at me and I will survive. And maybe our relationship will even be better. Yeah. Because it'll be honest. Mm -hmm. You know, I think we all have that felt sense of having a conversation with somebody and they're saying yes and you know that they're saying no but you're trying to take them at their word but you feel like you have to protect them from themselves Mm -hmm. and it's really uncomfortable and enmeshed and the energy is all over the place i endeavor to be the kind of person that people can take at face value Mm -hmm. and can know hey she's gonna take care of herself She's only going to say yes if it's truly a yes. She's never going to, you know, bullshit me. And of course, sometimes it's not perfect. Sometimes I say yes and then I have to say no later. But, you know, I am going to say no later if it's a no for me. And I think that I I feel so at ease when I'm speaking to somebody like that, <sighs> that it just is such a different feeling than the other way around, which is they're saying yes and I know I'm going to get it at some point. Yeah, totally. Oh, my gosh. I don't want it. I don't want it. (laughs) Totally. Or I know they're saying, yes, this happens in co-parenting for me all the time, where I have to coach my kid. And I'm like, when he says maybe, that is a no. (laughs) Just so you know, it took me, my child, it took me 20 years to realize when when they say yeah, when they say maybe, or I'll think about it, consistently that's going to be a no so don't hang your hopes on that's Mm going to happen and that's really hard to have to coach your kid because you know this like grown adult actually hasn't been able to learn to say no and trust other people to be disappointed in them you know it's really sad it's really hard to have to do like the interpretive dance of you're saying yes but everything i know about consent (laughs) non-verbally really looks and feels like a no so this is confusing our relationship yeah 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 for sure yeah and i mean i bring this into my relationship with my partner all the time like i want to be able to trust you please respect me enough to give me news i don't want to hear you know and of course you know i may have feelings about it that's fine Mm -hmm. and this is it you know, for the people pleasers amongst us, of which I very much am, it is hard to tolerate somebody's response to your truth, but necessary and good work. Yes. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So next up, we have the self-love stage. And I find that by this point, people are getting relatively good at saying no to things that they don't want to do. But here's the rub. At a certain point, 
your life is going to be filled with so much goodness. You're going to have to say no to things that you really want to say yes to, like really, really want to say yes to. If there was more of you to go around, you would say yes in a heartbeat. Mara, this doesn't sound fun. (laughs) No, it's rough. It is rough. And I will tell you, I am dealing with this right now myself because I am on very many committees and boards. I do a lot of work for affordable housing in my area. I'm very locally politically active. And for years, I have been wanting to be asked to be on a certain board. And about two weeks ago, they asked me to do that. And I was like, yay, my day is here. 100% yes. And then I had to get really honest with myself about everything that I'm already doing. Mm. And can I do it? 100%. Is it really in my best interest? No, it is not. Not at this time. Mm -hmm. And I have to trust that the opportunity, if, you know, if it's right, that the opportunity will come again. Um, But also that I'm a person with a limited capacity and I have already committed myself in a multitude of directions wholeheartedly, and that's what I have to give for right now. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I find that I come up against this, these no's so often these days, and it is brutal because I feel like I'm picking amongst all of these things that that I love. And sure, you know, if it was a different season, if it was a different time, if I wasn't, you know, devoting a lot of energy to my kids who are little, to healing my body, which has some, you know, stuff going on. It's like those things have to take priority right now. And that means it's going to be a very begrudging no. Mm-hmm. But please ask me again. <laughs> yeah, please. Please. Don't forget about me. Please. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. It's rough. Mm-hmm. And I think the last piece is the self-advocacy stage. And that's just ponying up and saying no. And, you know, you can find a lot of ways to say no. You can write yourself scripts if you're uncomfortable saying no. Um, I, I have a practice for myself where I used to say I can't because I'm too busy making myself look very important. And it felt like that was a kind of honorable way to say no versus just saying, I don't want to, which felt really shitty. (laughs) And so, you know, the, these last couple of years, um, as I've been saying no more and more often, I'm trying to be as honest with that no as possible and not say, for example, Ask me again if the if that's not true, because I would have done that before. Oh, circle back in six months. Great, great, great. And then they would and it would still be a no. And, you know, let it be a no the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind. totally get that, too. I used to my line when people would ask me to, like, go to their party or anniversary, I'd be like, oh, my gosh, thank you so much for asking me. I would love to come to your party, but I'm not going to because I don't want to. I would just like, I'd like be genuinely effusive and then be like, and, but I'm not going to, I'm just being honest. Mm-hmm. I, I don't like parties, but thank you, yeah. <laughs> you know? And like, I really appreciate you thinking of me or, you know? Yeah. So I would kind of just joke about it. I would love to, but I'm, I don't want to. 
<laughs> so that was my note. But ask like, me what? again. Yeah. Uh, because I, I love to be asked. I love to be asked. Exactly. <laughs> I super love feeling invited, but I actually don't want to go. I just kind of made a joke about it. And this was like even before meme times where, you know, I think that's probably yeah. a meme now, but it's like, no, I was the living meme. who would be like, I'd love to come, but I don't want to. But thank yeah. you. <laughs> so, but self-advocacy it does have like some more teeth to it, right? There's a bit mm -hmm. robust there. I, there is a kind of, um, it seems like this is probably this stage two where let's say you're in partnership, a committed partnership. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's like, okay, maybe we need to go to therapy now because, yeah. you know, we've, we're, we are now ready to kind of look at some of the underlying conditions and the dynamics at play and maybe different power and rank in our relationship or just like mm -hmm. past events and how we got here. How can we move forward? It seems like it's like, if you can do those other things, at some point you're going to get to the place where you're like, and now I need to enlist you in this. Because as I was reading your book, as a person who identifies as um, a recovering avoidant attacher, and my partner and I have earned a lot of secure attachment, um, one of the ways that we've done that is is like me recognizing both of us, but me sort of uh, lately, that my partner is in my care. And so as I was reading your book, I was like, oh, yeah, you're, you're talking a lot about like no one's coming to rescue you. Like you got to tend to these needs. And I was like, oh, this poor little person needs somebody who feels <laughs> like their needs matter and needs to, to hear that. Right. But it's like that comes later, actually. Yeah. And so the self-advocacy is like great because actually it really is important that um, in at this stage in my marriage that like. Uh, yes, my needs are in my partner's care and his are in mine. And so I, I, I do have to show up for this kind of stuff, but we couldn't do that until both of us had gone through all of the other stages and had this like deep self-trust and respect for each other um, and the sense of being known and seen and trying these intimacy risks. It does take a lot. So I think a lot of the pop culture tries to go straight to the advocacy stage mm -hmm. and like rah, rah champion, like that person's doing this and they need to da 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 whatever. And it's like, yeah, no, that's really important. You should do that in therapy for sure. But these things will really help ground that, you mm -hmm. know? Yeah. Super valuable. Well, and it's nuanced because, you know, I'll have people ask me, okay, well, what's my job? And then your job is asking for what you need. What's their job? Their job is deciding whether or not they have the capacity to meet you in that need. What's your job? Tolerating their response and getting curious about how else to meet that need. However, if this is a long-term relationship and you know, there, there is more to that conversation because if it's just constantly, no, 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 and it's not, or not now, but when, 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 you know, that conversation would look more like, I don't have the capacity right now. Um, how about tomorrow? And you may not, depending on what's going on in that relationship, be able to get to the point where you're communicating with one another that way. Mm -hmm. And, so important to get help with that and also such a personal line for each of us like i'll have people ask me well how many times hmm. is it okay for that person to say no and i'm like well you know it really depends you know for example in my life right now 
my we spent the last year uh taking care of my partner's best friend who was terminally ill and he passed away and mm -hmm. you know they're in a grief season right now mm -hmm. so they're pretty unilaterally unavailable to me in a lot of ways that they would be otherwise mm -hmm. and because we've been together for 15 years i know that is true mm -hmm. and you know does grief not sometimes change relationships in ways that you know maybe it doesn't go back to the way that it was or maybe we do need support in that but you know there are these nuances to different relationships that depend on what's going on and also on your own tolerance for it mm -hmm. somebody else may not have the tolerance that i have and many 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 people would have a lot more tolerance than i have <laughs> so you know it it we all have that um come to it from different places but i think starting from that point of i am a person who has needs and i'm allowed to have needs and i'm allowed to have needs whether or not you have the capacity to meet them and really validating that for yourself and advocating for those needs just inside of your relationship because what happens most often right we go to ask for what we need We've already done the mental process of assuming what we think we're going to get mm -hmm. or what others want to give to us, which is like taking that 100% of that need and bringing it down to, you know, a small fraction. And the more often that we get into the habit of doing that, we're asking for just the tiniest slice of the whole cake. Mm -hmm. And then you enter into the negotiation stage where you end up with an even smaller slice. So why not? Um, advocate even in your own mind that it is safe to want what you want and need what you need. Mm-hmm. Love it. You make the point in a few different ways in the book that sensing safety doesn't necessarily mean the total absence of threat. And this comes up when I'm doing somatics and attachment recovery all the time. And I loved this line. You wrote, what if we stopped thinking about meeting our need for safety as rectifying a lifetime of feeling unsafe and instead started to get curious about what we require to be, feel seen, heard, and held by ourselves and in this moment. And I just think that's like such a real game changer for people that, um, and, and it'll be really difficult for some people mm -hmm. to imagine um, because that there's an underlying grief there that it's like, oh yeah, this is, but I want this to fix a whole lifetime of things that I never got. And, and it's one thing to be like, oh yeah, I should have gotten it. But underneath that to realize where do I put the grief and where do I put this yearning that goes mm -hmm. so, so, so deep. So what did it take for you personally to be able to write a line like that, to be able to like come to accept this, that you needed to try to cultivate safeness despite fear and uncertainty or anxiety about that? So when I was writing that line, I was really thinking about how living in the world that we live in now with the systems of oppression that exist in absolutely every form that we interact with them every day, that achieving safety is in many ways outside of our hands. And it feels that way. It feels like, well, you know, if I could just make everything around me exactly the way that, you know, it's all a moving target, um, 
you know, I remember for myself thinking I will be safe when everyone around me is happy, which, um, (laughs) is not possible, you know, or if I think about it as it relates to my body, I'll feel safe when I'm with a, a, a medical provider who sees me as a person instead of a person who is fat, who needs to, you know, change my body before we even get to anything else. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, safety is such a moving target in that way that people are really triggered by it. And I wanted to think about a way that we attend to the places in our lives where we might be recreating these systems and these patterns of behavior that we've experienced in our relationship with ourselves and how we might begin to absolutely feel the grief that exists for all of the times that came before when we didn't have what we wanted and what we needed and when we weren't seen as we are um, or you know we weren't treated in such a way that we mattered And how do we stop perpetuating those patterns in how we treat ourselves? And so, you know, I love, after I wrote this book, um, I interviewed Don Sarah, uh, who Mm. is an awesome coach, and she uh, talked about being safe enough or safe even if just in and for this moment, which I think I would have included in this chapter had I had that conversation prior. And I love that idea of what does it mean to be safe enough? And what does it mean to um, be safe, to, to recognize the difference between am I safe in this moment versus am I safe in all ways all of the time? Because frankly, we're not safe in many ways at any time. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, having that differentiation, but starting to look into how I was recreating this in my relationship with myself. So for me, you know, that piece where we talked about in the self-advocacy, it's, you know, speaking up for myself, even if just to myself, not co-signing my own subjugation in my own mind. So, realizing that just because somebody said something, just because they said it with confidence or like it was a fact, or just because I had heard something many, many times before and it felt true because of just the multiple angles it arrived at, that it wasn't in fact true or didn't need to be true for me. And that I could say, even in my own mind, this doesn't feel good. This doesn't feel right. I want something to be different here. And I think it can be painful to acknowledge that we want something that we aren't going to get. And that's where the grief comes in. But in terms of our own understanding of things, so important too that we give voice that this isn't right. That wasn't right. Mm -hmm. And um, moving through that, you know, in my work, I talk a lot about self-talk for self-trust. And really thinking about how everything that I say to and about myself is either rebuilding self-trust or further breaking it down. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I look at how I talk about myself to other people. So using that example of being in, in a bigger body and, you know, being at the doctor's office, all of that kind of stuff. If I look at how am I talking to myself about my body? Usually pretty shitty. 
right? That social conditioning just plays on a loop in your mind. Um, how am I talking about myself to other people? Diminishing your body as social currency. Very familiar to many of us who, you know, are women who talk to women in places where women gather. Um, not just women, of course, but, well, yeah. A pretty strong conditioning there. But yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, starting to realize everything that I say about myself is braiding itself into my self-image. And for me, the number one thing that helps me to create safety inside of myself is to really attend to my phys the physical needs of my body. And, you know, the difference between me hungry and tired and, you know, not hydrated, never having been outside for a long time, and me taking my dog for a walk in the morning, making sure I'm eating all of my meals, like stable blood sugar is my number one thing. <laughs> if I only do one, it changes everything about how I'm able to maneuver these conversations with myself. And so... You know, the more that I realized that too, that that was something for me. That's not something about how my body looks to other people or changing it in a certain way or anything like that. That my ability to safely occupy myself is changed by whether or not I have breakfast, by how much caffeine I drink, by not staying up and pressing play on one more episode of Yellowstone before I go to bed. Um, <laughs> So, you know, learning how to occupy myself with greater awareness and, you know, to the end of building self-trust and taking responsibility for my physical needs. Mm. So you also then talk about how some activities can be restful because they give you more energy than they require to complete. Um, so I think this could be really tricky if you're a just one more thing kind of person like me. Like I, I have this sense that if I do just one more thing and I knock it off my list, I'll feel elated and then I'll be able to rest better. But of course the list is bottomless. It's totally endless. And I never arrive at elation, but I have this like very strong, I don't know if it's like a sense memory or some kind of perception that there is elation out there where I complete the tasks and then I like really settle. Um, and so I chase it really hard. So your advice in the book about determining the bottom of your list, <laughs> like what's the max you're going to do? Um, I feel like that's a really practical piece of advice and it's really valuable. And I think I'm very much in that stage where I'm like, oh, okay. Like, it's not just that, oh, if I complete this activity, then I'll be able to settle because I'll feel less anxious about it or I'll feel less um, pressure to do it. But like, actually, if I give it a bottom, if I just say, this is what I think my, this is how many spoons, if people know the spoons metaphor, mm -hmm. like I've got this many spoons today. So this is the bottom of my list. Um, I think that's where I am. So how do I know if I'm doing it right? I would mm. where when do I like give myself a gold star? What does rest actually feel like then? If it's not just like putting off anxiety, <laughs> like what does it feel like to be like, oh, this is an activity I'm doing that's giving me more energy. And so I feel rested. It's like I can't, I don't have enough examples to help me go, okay, I'm doing it right now. Gold star. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so I think there's a couple different pieces here. And the first is, you know, that chasing that elation. Like if it were going to work respectfully and lovingly, it would have worked already, right? Mm -hmm. We would be feeling that elation. And, you know, I think that we are conditioned to expect more of ourselves than we can ever actually manage. That's what keeps us striving, striving, striving. But it's different than that too. It's almost that we have a magical realist relationship with space and time. And so our ability to know what is reasonable to accomplish is challenged at best. Yeah. Because we're seeing ourselves, you know, we have this ideal self that lives in our mind and she's like amazing. She's us on our very best day, kind of interwoven with this social ideal of what a productive stellar human might be. And she's out of reach by design, but we make our plans with her in mind. So it's mm-hmm. like ideal Mara certainly could attend to all of these things, mm-hmm. but real life Mara You know, my capacity is different on different days, depending on the health of my body, on whether or not I slept, whether or not my kids slept, whether or not, you know, whatever is going on. I'm having some kind of flare up that's going to immediately diminish so much of my capacity. So when we are thinking about what we're going to get done on any given day, the closest that we can come to relating with ourselves and our current bodies and making our plans from that place, the, the, it is immediately going to be better. And I have a joke for myself, which is like, yeah, sure. You know, ideal Mara can do that, but can real life Mara do it? (laughs) You know, am I, who am I making this list for? Because I wish I, I wish you could see my list for today. It's a hot mess. It's like, I thought I was going to get so much more done. I'm crate training the dog. I, you know, I got really spun out about an email. I had to spend half an hour processing that with my partner. I was really excited about this podcast, wanted to think about that for, you know, it just didn't, it went sideways. And so when we're thinking about what that end point is for that day, sometimes, rarely, I'll do it in terms of these are the things I'm going to get done. Much more often because of that space and time issue, I'll say, this is the time that I'm going to be done. However much I've gotten done that day and however I feel about it, which is usually pretty cranky. (laughs) And, you know, that is because, whatever, for me today, I'm the chair of our local comprehensive plan committee. We have a meeting at three. So, you know, I will be done with work for the day at three because then I have that meeting and after that I'm going to feed my kids. On another day, it might you know, it's not a consistent endpoint, but having something definitive so that you can say, this is the bottom of the day. Mm-hmm. And at the bottom of the day, all I'm doing is pressing pause on my to-do list. Mm-hmm. I like to think of it like it's there. It knows I haven't done everything. It knows there's more to accomplish. And it's not that I'm not attending to it or I'm like falsely pretending everything's fine. It's just that I reach a point where I'm pressing pause. And the reason is that I'm fully invested in my work being as sustainable as possible over the duration of my life. I'm the vessel for that work, which means I need to eat and sleep and stare at the wall. And because I've made that commitment to myself, even though I have feelings or judgments about however much I got done today, 
I'm invested in pressing pause. And I think, you know, part of this is any work I do after that point is going to be crappy anyway. I'm going to be tired. You know, it's going to take me three times longer than it would just take me 10 minutes tomorrow morning. And so really knowing that. So once you press pause, how do you give back to yourself? Mm -hmm. And we don't have to optimize every square moment of our day. Yeah. I think this is the piece that's like, I have to have pressed pause for a good reason. What the fuck am I doing now? I'm just, I don't know, frittering around in my kitchen or like <laughs> not doing, not quote unquote doing anything, mm -hmm. but that we have to have downtime. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that will be engaging in an active rest activity. You know, in the book, I talk about how my favorite, maybe I don't, but uh, my favorite active rest activity is to detail my car. Oh, you do say or, that. I was like, yeah, or clean like another small space. It's just I do so much mental work every day that it's so restorative for me to reorganize like my kid's snack cabinet or some just like one spot mm -hmm. and to just see the tangible change of my labor because so much of my labor is just like goes out into the universe and comes back to me in untold ways. So to take a small space, there's an exertion to it, but it helps to organize my inner workings in such a way that it feels really restorative. Mm. For some people, for you, perhaps this might be reading, right? Mm -hmm. Gives to you more than it takes. Um, you know, walking my dog is also this kind of thing. There, you know, is an, an energy expenditure to going for the walk, but I get so much from being out of the house, being in the woods. Um, mm -hmm. Because, yeah, you know, and and having that, that um, margin, too. Because otherwise, if we're working all the way up until we go to bed, you know, then sure, maybe we're sleeping, but we don't have any time for feeding ourselves in other ways. And that is really important as well. And people will always say, you know, I'm busy until the very last moment. And I just am curious about, you know, yes, that will be true for some of us during times of our lives. Absolutely. And also, you know, I will cop to how many minutes and or hours a day I'm scrolling on social media. Um, you know, and, and in an attempt to feed myself something that it doesn't truly satisfy, right? So if I were feeling like I need more time in my life for myself, I might look to that because it often feels like, oh, this is my time, mm -hmm. but doesn't actually feed me in any way. And I could not take all of my social media away, mm -hmm. you know, but take like a half an hour of it and do something else. Yeah, I get I give myself where I'm like, oh, this is my zone out time, which mm -hmm. I don't include as my rest time. And one of the things that um, I have been thinking about, for, you know, for a long time, but we've finally been able to like kind of organize our household around it is like, um, you know, okay, maybe this is just spiritual circles, but I think it's also like um, personal development and like motivation like optimize your life circles it's like you wake up in the morning and there's some hour of power where you meditate and you like 
have your hot water with lemon or whatever it is, right? You wake up early and, oh, if the household wakes up at seven, then you just get up at six and you and like, fuck, I am not, as we're recording, it is almost noon my time. I'm still in my pajamas. You can verify this, right? They're very I, I am, cute. Thank you. I am <laughs> not a morning person. So what I've realized is like my partner, he needs to be breakfast guy. There's just not a world in which I have ever loved being the breakfast person. I want to sleep right in until the coffee is brought to the bed. But we've realized, okay, so then Carmen, who never eats lunch, because then I like start and I, I can drink my coffee at nine and then like not eat until four. That's not good. Blood sugar, not good, not good for the household. So now that I have adopted, I'm lunch lady. It's like, I am lunch lady. And so I am going to pause and I am going to do this thing where I eat food and it's going to give me energy. But also what's happened is like, oh, look, we we eat lunch together. We have a nice conversation. It, it, it did take some effort to slow my morning work momentum. The other thing I've realized is that hour of power, I still want it. I still want my private not scrolling, but just like something that fills me up time. And so now kind of sometime between 12 and two o'clock every day is when I'm going to reset my altar for my planetary offerings. So like I have a different, different things go on the altar, depending on which day of the week it is to propitiate the God that rules that day. I'm going to draw my tarot and Oracle cards. I'm going to like journal about it. And guess what? If it happens at 2 p.m., it's no big fucking deal. It's like really no big deal that I didn't start my day with an hour of power and like now I'm a, a good and proper witch or whatever. It's like mm -hmm. it's it's going to happen when it happens. It's probably going to happen after I do my lunch lady stuff. <laughs> then I'm going to like be fed. And instead of scrolling or instead of being like, OK, I should get right back to work because I've eaten. It's like now is the pause now is my restful time and I'm going to do this thing. And um, I, I might even curl up in my bed and with my like journal and look up more information in some really awesome tarot book about this particular card. Like I, I really indulge that now. And it, I don't know why it took me to almost 50 to realize it doesn't have to be first thing in the morning. And I'm not like a crappy witch for not being able to like discipline myself enough to like quote unquote, start my day. My day is ongoing and unfolding and I'm just going to like get in rhythm when it feels right. But protecting that hour is really still important to me. And I'm not like a moral failure that I didn't catch it right when I opened my eyes in the morning, you know? Yeah. I don't know why it took so long to figure that one out, but it just does sometimes. Well, and that it has to be unique to you. I mean, I think this is the piece as you were talking, I was thinking about how my ideal morning is waking up before everybody else and making the coffee. And I, I like meditate into my children's lunch making. I can't even tell you if, if my kids are awake when I'm making lunches, I am pissed. That is like, I am cutting those vegetables. I'm making it look, it's like, it's so aesthetically pleasing. I'm one of those moms. You're but a it is such, I'm, mom, like on I'm doing a thing. Yeah. I'm doing a whole thing in my mind while I'm having that time. And so being able to do it before they're they're awake is so pleasurable. And then I bounce out to go take the dog for a walk. My partner like gets them ready to go and I get them to go to school. Oh, so, you know, it could be, it can be whatever it is. Uh, I think that's the point is that it has to be responsive instead of prescriptive. 
And what works for you isn't going to work for everybody else. And that's fine. Uh, But taking the time to figure out what works for you is of paramount importance. I'm going to write down that that's the thing I could do that would give me so much energy. My my child has moved out and I'm like worried about what they're eating, honestly. But I'm like, (laughs) ooh, I'm going to go like get, you know, like bento box or like ice cube tray. And I wouldn't meal plan for my house, but I'm like, ooh, I'm going to make little plowman's lunches you know, for at least three or four days of the week. And then I can take it over to him and he would have them and I could go over once like that would, that would be an activity that would be so restful and like lovely for me. It would just feel like a luxurious way to spend my time. Um, and I feel like when I'm tired, I forget them. So mm-hmm. I'm just going to like write that down, that that's like a thing that I want to do. <laughs> Make yeah. like little bento box lunches and take them over to my kiddo. It's very fun. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so- and writing it down is a great hack because I think that's the thing is we forget what's true about us or what works. And totally. great to have a running list of like, hey, you feel some kind of way? Did you try X, Y, and Z thing? Totally, totally. Okay, so the last question on the podcast is always the same, Mara. We touched on it a little bit earlier about the the underlying grief of unmet needs, but I'm curious how you personally grapple with grief and with rage. The first is to acknowledge that it is okay to grieve in unnecessarily long and winding (laughs) ways. And the second is that it's okay to feel rage, just point blank. But the activity that I do is I scream sing in my car. Oh, yeah. And I have like a whole list of things that I like. Right now, I'm really into Crazy on You by heart. And What's Up, Four Non Blondes, classic. Think something with a big vocal range. I love that. Can't go wrong with heart. Yeah, for sure. Um, Honey Tyler, I'm going to bring her in when I'm sad. Yeah. And so for me, part of this is just the, you know, the energy of being in a space in a way that is very uninhibited but specifically for me the um i have a tendency to swallow the things that i don't say or that i don't think that i should feel and so working with my throat in this kind of way where i just like i mean sing in a completely unrestrained way helps to shift some of that energy it's been such a nice practice for me over the course of the last year where i've been feeling a lot of grief and just heaviness to have a space where you know it's just me i'm on the highway um and i'm i'm screaming saying i'm often crying i mean people are seeing me drop my kids off at school and then I'm passing all of them on the highway on the way home. I live in a small town, as I mentioned, and I'm just like screaming and crying in the car. And it's great. It is it's it is really, really good for me uh, to express myself in that way and to create a safe container to do that, mm-hmm. that I can access anytime I want. Mm, I'm just thinking too, maybe I should create a list of no songs. I really, I, so I'm on a Hall & Oates kick. Great mm-hmm. Daryl Hall and John Oates. And I can't go for that is like one of my favorite songs. Just that I can't, I, I can't go for that. That's mm-hmm. like a great, maybe I should like, we should all create playlists in Spotify that everybody else can see. It's like, this is the the needy person's no playlist and just get practiced at saying like, no, uh-uh. Mm-hmm. Or the energy of it, 
right? You know, I could, yeah. Yeah, um, Ford, Maisie, Faisie, Maisie Ford, I'm done. That's another really good one. Uh, there's a lot of them out there. I can think of a few. Uh, oh, that's all great. Right. You should make a playlist, Mara, because um, it feels good to say no in like a, in a, you know, the car is so nice because it's like your own little bubble. It's like your own little cocoon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. Great suggestion. Well, the book is full of fantastic suggestions. It's very practical. Um, it's very, it's very useful. And even I, I don't identify as a needy person, but uh, that's because I've been told that my needs were uh, irrelevant and learned very early that they weren't going to be met. And so what's the point of even having needs? Nobody's going to meet your needs. So you might as well just not have them, right? Very like typical avoidant. But guess what? That doesn't mean you don't have needs. It just means you've turned the volume so far down that you can't hear them. And it just comes up in other ways like over productivity or resentment or anger or like, um, yeah, very kind of all or nothing. So it was very healing to that part of me that like knows the words, of course your needs matter, my needs matter, but it was a very, very long process. It was a really long, long process just to even determine what might my need possibly be when the default has been, they're not gonna be met. So just be resourceful. This was a very healing book. So thank you, Mara, and thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me, this was the best. I really enjoyed it. Okay, if you've listened to my show in the past year, when I was launching my book, The Spirited Kitchen, then you already know how important pre-orders are to an author's success. It just, if you don't know, just please trust me, it actually really matters that people pre-order the book. So I'm going to ask you to go right now and pre-order Mara's book, Needy. I read it, I sat down and devoured it in like two days, and as I was, I was thinking of several people that I would want to loan or gift this book to. So I'm telling you, it's money well spent. You will find today's show notes at numinouspodcast.com where I'll add Mara's website and that has links to various sellers or if you don't want to buy online or from a big box store or whatever, really just call your local independent store. Anyone that is your favorite store, just ask them to order it for you. It's published by Sounds True and it's super easy for local stores, small stores even to do that because they can always return books that don't get sold. So it's not a big deal for them to bring in a, a book for you and a few extra for the shelf. Easy peasy. And thank you for doing that. My listener shout out today is to Kaylee, who posted a really awesome five-star review of The Spirited Kitchen on Goodreads. Kaylee writes, the Spirited Kitchen inspired a gathering of friends shortly after getting the book. Heading into winter, I cooked from the Yuletide chapter. Herbs from the garden were mixed with blessings for each person to make a delicious, delicious crusted roast. Okay, that already gets me a little teared up. <laughs> like, exactly. It's so beautiful. Uh, which was paired with incredible wine gravy and the rapini dish. The leek and camembert tart got the most compliments of the evening. Every morsel was eaten, and my Scottish friends in attendance said it was the best leek recipe they've tasted, while stressing that they've eaten a lot of leeks in their lifetimes. <laughs> That's like such a great compliment. It was a beautiful meal, and I will definitely use these recipes again. 
overall, this book is a wise guide toward the grounded magic available when we orient to the seasons, offerings of the land, and practices of our ancestors. As someone exploring my own mixed European background, I value the recipes, research, stories, and practical instructions for ritual. They inspire me to continue my path of connection to nature, spirit, and others. Kaylee, that is so gratifying. Thank you. Thank you. That's exactly why I wrote the book. If you would like to read a really scathing review of The Spirited Kitchen by someone who obviously just flipped through my book, uh, go to Goodreads. I think it's goodreads.com and look for Shannon's review and then look at the two comments under it, both from me countering her review. I, you know, if you don't like my book because you're like, eh, it's too Pinteresty, it's too like generic, that's totally fine. That's your valid pre- preference. Like that's your opinion. Um, but the critiques that this person cites demonstrate that they didn't actually read it, um, and that's just rude. Like it's just rude to review a book that you haven't actually read. So if you want some book review drama, my friends, go to Goodreads. But if you actually have read my book or used it, please do leave an honest review. And if you don't like my book, that's totally fine. If you think it's actually like three or four stars, say why. And that'll help other potential readers out. And maybe even consider just sharing who you think might like my book. That's a good review. Who is the book for? So even if you don't want to give it five stars, just say who is it for? That's a great review. I'm totally appreciative of that. Thank you. Okay, last thing. Spring 2023. I've got two giveaways happening exclusively for my newsletter subscribers. So February 28th, I'm drawing for a witch's apothecary gift box that I have made from my own garden for all your spellcraft needs. It's really special and lovely and it'll have like a pendulum and a selenite wand and just other little goodies that are so awesome but mostly it's botanicals and things that I've wildcrafted myself. And then on March 28th, totally different vibe. Well, maybe, I don't know. If you're like me, it's not a different vibe. This is just another form of um, self-care. It's the popular mechanics kit from mymedic.com. So it's an incredible emergency kit for your car. I don't even have a car and I got this kit. So whenever we go on a longer trip in the co-op car or we borrow a friend's car to go somewhere, this is the kit that we will take. We already have a car kit that we use, but this one is so compact. I really like it. I'm not sponsored by my medic, but if anyone knows them, if they want, if they're listening, I am wildly open to that. Anyway, you just need to be on my newsletter list and your name will be put into these draws on February 28th and March 28th. Just go to my website, carmenspaniola.com. C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. Until next time, take care.